Hello, my name is Carlos Parra. I'm a professor at Floyd International University. And in this recording, we will be interviewing Jeffrey Parker. He's a professor at Dartmouth College, and he was recently named a POMS Fellow for 2020. This is part of the podcast series for POMS Society. I am joined by Sridham Narayan. He is Vice President for Publications for POMS Society. And we will be starting with our interview with Jeff. Jeffrey Parker is Professor of Engineering at Dartmouth College, where he also serves as Director for the Master of Engineering Management Program. In addition, he's a research fellow at MIT's Initiative for the Digital Economy, where he leads platform industry research studies and co-chairs the annual MIT Platform Strategy Summit. Prior to joining Dartmouth, Parker was Professor of Business at Tulane University. He received a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering from Princeton and Master's in Science and PhD from MIT. He's made significant contributions to the field of network economics and strategy as co-developer of the theory of two-sided networks. He's co-author of the book, Platform Revolution. His current research includes studies on platform business strategy, data governance, smart cities, energy systems, financial services, and electronic healthcare record systems. Jeff's research has been funded by grants from the National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy, the states of Louisiana and New York, and numerous other corporations. He serves and has served as department editor and associate editor at multiple journals and as a National Science Foundation panelist. Jeff won the Thinkers 50 2019 Digital Thinking Award, along with Marshall von Alstein, for the concepts of the inverted firm, two-sided markets, and how firms can adapt and thrive in a platform economy. Jeff is a frequent keynote speaker and advises senior leaders on the organization's platform strategy. Before attending MIT, he held positions in engineering and finance at General Electric Semiconductor and General Electric Healthcare. Welcome, Jeffrey. Great to be talking to you. Congratulations. First, we just want to find out how you got into academics and you know, what got you into this career and how did you decide to become a scholar? So I kind of came by it naturally because my father was a professor growing up, but he was in natural sciences, a neurophysiologist. Uh, but as a young child, I would go to his labs and run around and play with the equipment. He had these cool oscilloscopes and operating room equipment and all kinds of uh, fun things for a kid to play with. Um, so from my point of view, that's what everybody did. Uh, of course, I, only much later did I realize that for most people, uh, the idea of being a professor is is kind of both daunting and uh, they have a hard time envisioning themselves. Whereas growing up, I always figured I would go to grad school. So even though I went to General Electric um, as a first an engineer and then a finance person, uh, I always expected that I would go back to grad school. Um, and, and evidently it was a pretty strong signal because I'm a uh, one of four children. Uh, I have three sisters. Um, three of the four of us uh, have been professors in our careers. And I suspect that the fourth, um, who's a lawyer in government service, uh, when she retires, she's very likely to go into uh, to teach in a law school. So it's kind of a simple answer. But I think the reason why it was so appealing is my father would say, you know, I can't imagine having done anything else for the past 25 years. This is the most fun I could imagine having. I love my job. And that sort of joy in it, uh, he communicated. And I, I, I can see why, especially once you get through kind of the grueling process of, uh, 
of the apprenticeship period of both PhD and, and junior faculty, you just have so many degrees of freedom. So he was absolutely right. Um, and we can kind of circle back to what I think of that apprentice period uh, later on. But the, the punchline is I think we make it harder on people than we need to, but that's a whole, a whole separate issue. I was just going to say that, um, you know, that also explains your interest in, in health sciences and, and how, you know, you have such a, a, an eclectic set of uh, research interests. And, and um, it's very interesting that, you know, you went into engineering, even though your father was into health sciences. Was there anyone that guided you uh, beyond your father on uh, once you were in, in, into engineering and why you ended up in electrical and, and that uh, trajectory? Anyone else? Well, the electrical, sure, because I was a ham radio operator and I liked to build radios. In fact, there's one funny story where my parents were gone for a day and I had was stringing antennas in the backyard and I cut down and kind of mangled a number of trees making room to hang dipole antennas. And uh, I, I got in some, some degree of trouble for that one. Um, but I, so my father liked sort of animal tissue and working with living organisms. And I always was interested in, in objects and in particular electrical and kind of electronics and, and computer things. And honestly, that, that played through even at the beginning of my career because I, I sort of straddle that IT and uh, operations management world. And relatively early, I found myself kind of taking TiVos apart and reprogramming them and um, the, the kernel uh, sort of operating systems. And, and so I was clearly remained interested in that. And it was that kind of physical and digital. And, and, and I want to come back to that. Uh, and I'll, I'll answer one of your questions and talk about why I think we're, we're moving in that direction. You asked one other question about the health sciences. Um, honestly, what happened there is, is kind of a funny story. I, at Tulane, where I was teaching operations management in the professional MBA program, a number of the doctors uh, would take that MBA. Uh, so even though they're my peers, these are people in their, in their 40s um, who are very senior doctors at Tulane Medical School, they showed up as MBA students. And they said, listen, I need to be able to argue with our 25-year-old finance people. So just give it to us as hard and straight and basic as you can. You know, don't treat us like executive MBAs, treat us like first your newbie quants. Um, and as a result of that class, I met a number of the professors, including the head of transplant surgery at Tulane. And that really pulled me into a whole network of faculty who are publishing a number of papers. And, and that's, that's, I'd say relatively recent, but say within the last uh, five or 10 years, uh, that that stream has, has been coming along. And that's, that's becoming increasingly relevant. I'd say that's sort of a substream, but in many ways, my interest in platforms, in operations, and in healthcare are starting to converge. But I'd say I, I think of myself as, as kind of a digital sort of economics strategy operations guy first, and then domain, say, healthcare energy second. You published this book recently, which has done really well on platforms. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about your book and what led to that book? Because I know you've worked a lot on platforms. And that's a funny story because a lot of people talk about platforms today, but when we first got interested in them in the late 90s, nobody talked about them. 
because that Silicon Valley stuff was just not interesting to people who quote worked in the real economy, like banking sector, manufacturing, you know, automotive, healthcare. Uh, they just had a very different mindset about how the world worked, and it was much more, you know, even the way they did project management was very stage gate. It was sort of very enterprise focused. Um, so people weren't really interested in these issues of network effects, but the way we got into that is just pricing anomalies. Uh, and I did uh, a lot of that work with one of my PhD buddies, um, Marshall Van Alstyne, who's at BU now. And so we started talking about things in the coffee room, probably around 97. And then we wrote our first paper on two-sided networks in 99. And that took forever to get published because it was new. And so the publishing antibodies against new theory are very strong. And we can talk about that at some point in length. Uh, but that led to a whole stream of work first on essentially industrial organization economics, really nailing down pricing in the presence of network effects and why you might observe zero prices forever and why that would be both profit maximizing and good for um, overall kind of welfare and frankly for consumer welfare. So you can kind of march down all those different questions. Um, and that upturned a lot of, of kind of antitrust theory because it looked like predatory pricing, but in fact it was uh, perfectly rational firm behavior. Um, so that notion of two-sided network theory had to get absorbed into all kinds of, of different regulatory bodies. And that all was happening, say, around 2005 to, say, 2015. Those ideas began to infuse pretty completely. Then we shifted our attention, say, about 2005 to broader questions of industry structure and strategy. And so uh, we, we published that two-sided network theory that came out in 2005, um, the, the first theory paper. Then we got a 2006 Harvard Business Review article that really was our way of starting to build out um, platform strategy. Uh, and then Marshall and I were teaching the content in our MBA classes. And I'd say that we knew we were gonna write the book probably starting about 2011, uh, but he wanted to do a startup. I wanted to write a book. Uh, we arm wrestled. No, that's not really true. I forget exactly how we, how we decided, but he won. We, we started a business, got it up to about 10 people, you know, didn't have product market fit, didn't have the right, we did a lot of things wrong, spent a lot of money, uh, then wound it back down. And then I go, okay, now it's my turn. Let's write a book. And we got that going in about 2013. And the book, it's Platform Revolution, is built directly off of our MBA classes, but I'd say it's most of those chapters are rooted in a pretty good body of uh, literature. And some of that's engineering design. So for example, all of the work that Carlos Baldwin and um, many others, um, Kim Clark uh, did in kind of product modularity is very front and center in that. And then of course our own work and two-sided networks uh, and you know a ton of scholars with whom we've been fortunate enough to bounce off of and also learn from. So we tried to distill that course into a digestible book because we were only reaching 
maybe between us 100, 200 people a year, uh, as opposed to the hundreds of thousands that we're now reaching um, through the book. And then it's used uh, in many companies and in a number of online courses. Um, and that was sort of our, we had a sense that you could scale, but it was really true once, once we pursued that. So that was a lot of fun. You're also an entrepreneur. That's amazing. I, I, I didn't realize that. And, and you had gone into business with, with Marshall. And, you know, at, at that point, it sounds like there was the opportunity for you to go into industry and also do academics. Um, how, how did that go? You know, could you please tell us more about the business? You also mentioned that you invested funds into that and of course time. And how did you say, okay, you know what, this is not for me. I'm just going to stick to academics or, or you still explore business opportunities. Well, I, you know, you, you said something really interesting, which is entrepreneurial, but I think every faculty member is entrepreneurial. I think of every research stream as building a team and building a business, whether the business is designed to create a profit or whether it's designed to create influence, visibility, discover something new. My mindset is every one of these projects that I undertake is first about, you know, is this interesting? Yes. Is it worth my time? Second, you know, who do I like working with? Who's also competent to work on this project and note the order. I will order on, on who do I care to work with because life is too short frankly, if you don't enjoy the process, because every project just takes a ton of time. And so you may as well have fun while you're doing it. Uh, and then you build a team. And then essentially, it's literally like trying to find product market fit. You know, let's get a bunch of examples. Let's figure out what is missing in this. What resonates? What do we think is interesting? Um, what's possible in terms of either the data that you can collect, the models that you could build, um, the theorizing that you could do, and then you go after it. And I don't see how that's that much different than building products and services uh, directly for a market. So I think that entrepreneurial mindset is one that we should probably teach our junior faculty a bit more directly, uh, because that really is how I think um, you can A, make it fun and B, you know, have a lot of impact and influence. That should probably be your next book, you know, the, the entrepreneurial mindset to academics, because it sounds like you have a, you know, a, a, an HR strategy, a marketing strategy, uh, you know, all the, the a financial strategy uh, for each one of the projects. That's, that's fascinating. Well, you know, you, let me, let's drill down on that a little bit, because I think the financial strategy is a good one. I mean, I, we're probably coming to the end of the era where people will blindly pay for research and academics time to spend on, on creating knowledge without asking some pretty hard questions about what that knowledge is and what its usefulness is. So, you know, in many fields and you can, you can kind of look at it and say, well, it, it, this could be fundamental research and that's, that's knowledge that's worth pursuing for knowledge's sake. Um, and then there are other types of knowledge that you might produce, which is often integrative. You're not doing sort of fundamental physics theory or, or discovering sort of fundamental new mathematics. You're often using tools from disparate fields and combining them. And I'd say that's most of what social science research or management 
research and a lot of economics would look like. Um, and then you say, well, where are the resources coming from that allow me to have the time to do this? And you know, our business model is you teach some and then you are free with the rest of your time to do research. And so clearly there's some surplus uh, that you're generating either through teaching or in many schools, the business model is we hire adjuncts or professors of practice who then generate enough revenue to allow research faculty to do their thing. Um, but I think we're gonna scrutinize that pretty carefully. And as a result, I think that it's going to become more important that we answer questions that are clearly ones people care about. So it really is about kind of what's the audience? Is there a market for it? Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I've often tried to do sponsored research, not because business schools required it. I'm in an engineering school and they certainly smile when you have sponsored research, but uh, the first 18 years of my career were in a business school. They didn't require me to get DOE grants, NSF grants, generate corporate funded, you know, corporate sponsorships, but I did it anyway. And partly as a signal that said, hey, you know, people are willing to spend, you know, in aggregate many millions of dollars to sponsor these streams. And that's a signal that says that somebody cares. And, and also it's a really great way of making sure that you have current information because you're able to get that from the corporations that you work with. So you understand really a, at a pretty fundamental level what they're grappling with. And, and that brings up a very interesting question, Jeff. You, you, you've been a fairly early leader in this sponsored research in business school, certainly, right? I mean, you've done a lot of that. How would you advocate younger scholars to actually think about sponsored research and going in that direction? Um, you know, any, any thoughts, suggestions for how they should go about it? Well, I, you know, having done my, um, my PhD at MIT, I'd say that I was sponsored by foundations like Sloan Foundations, uh, Leaders for Manufacturing uh, was a sponsored program with a number of companies and I was a, a teaching assistant in RA as part of that, uh, the International Motor Vehicle Program also at MIT. So there was a, a lot of sponsored research that was taking place with business school faculty. So I think, you know, I grew up quote in the academic world with that mindset, um, but I really have to credit my, my good friend and co-author Marshall Van Alstein uh, because he was not in a business school at the beginning of his career. He was in the School of Information in Michigan and they had much more of an engineering school mindset, which is everybody pursued kind of sponsored research. Uh, and I looked at that and I said, well, that looks like it gives you some freedom in funding and it helps you sharpen and focus the pitch for your ideas. And so I partnered with Ed Anderson, so a longtime POMS member, and we did our first big kind of National Science Foundation project. I mean, big for us um, at the time. And that was great because it, it gave us kind of the entree to study distributed kind of product development, product innovation, uh, distributed knowledge work. 
and gave us the money essentially to be able to travel, interview a ton of, of firms in their in in their places of work. So we, we spent a fair bit of time in the kind of bouncing around the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, we didn't get over to Asia, but so that was sort of Europe U.S. based. I think I'm tangling myself in a bit of a pretzel trying to answer this because I've lost the thread. But the advice that I would give is sort of twofold. If you're going after the corporate side, then it's about answering questions that serve the dual purpose of both furthering your academic research while not getting captured for consulting. And so I would actually counsel junior faculty to go after National Science Foundation money, National Institute of Health money, Department of Energy money, and the reason is you don't have that dual pressure of trying to satisfy um, the company's direct interests, because as a more senior faculty member, you can kind of hold the companies off and say, listen, you know, I have to be able to sponsor students. I've got to be able to produce something at the end of this that will sort of further the academic enterprise while at the same time helping you address your your business interests and, and questions. Uh, but I, that's a tougher game to play. And so I would tend to tell junior faculty to give a shot at doing um, some of the government sponsored work first or EPA, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, and then the direct way to do it is to serve on a review panel. And so if you know, basically go to the uh, presentations that the program officers uh, attend, and they attend our informs, POMS, they'll come and you, you can meet NSF program officers, sometimes DOE, uh, listen to what they have to say, uh, offer to serve. It's much like reviewing papers. It's, it's a lot of work. I've done a fair bit of it. And um, then you really learn what a fundable proposal is. Could you just give us some hints on, you know, the administrative architecture of the funding? I'd help bring things to ensure that, of course, you know, there's some corporate goals that are met, but also academic goals and that. Is there an administrative way to, you, to yeah. put that into? Yeah, there, there is. Um, and the way to do that is to build out a statement of work that has both parties' objectives pretty clearly stated. Um, you know, the good news, so, so if you do NSF, you'll have to have a National Science Foundation um, proposal that'll have a body of theory, testable hypotheses, um, proof that you have access to data, perhaps industrial connections, um, whatever it might be. On the corporate side, to ring fence, as you say uh, yourself, a statement of work that says, this is what's going to get produced on what time frame is protection against kind of scope creep at the end because, and you should bake in some things that are of direct interest to the company. So I usually start with uh, a data gathering and maybe a big workshop. And that big workshop in many ways will help the company along the lines of what executive education might look like. And you could do kind of design workshops. And so they'll view that as being highly valuable and for me, it's something that I do anyway uh, in the normal course of business, uh, you know, just being a faculty member, uh, but also it's fun and it's a way to meet people and you can set them off in, in sort of sub working groups 
uh, you can tailor interesting questions to their industry and environment and context and then kind of see what they have to say. So that serves a couple of goals for onboarding. And then you can kind of launch into, okay, we're going to run down a little more deeply. That's going to be more of an academic project. And then at the end, we'll do some kind of translation into the business context so that you feel like you're getting value on the bookends and we're doing research in the middle. You, you alluded to your, uh, your trajectory and I know we got into the, the entrepreneurial side of things and you mentioned something very important in terms of how uh, we need to change the mindset in research and make it more, more applicable. Would you apply that uh, mindset change to teaching? Always. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the beautiful thing is that if you're doing work that is of direct relevance, especially on the industrial side, then you always have current examples. You can always bring speakers in um, who can then illustrate the issues. So for example, I, I, teach my, I teach a course called Platform Design Management and Strategy. I teach it in the engineering school, but the business school students found it. So it's about a third uh, MBAs and about two thirds engineering students. And in that class, You know, when I want to talk about launch, product market fit, network effects, two-sided pricing, I can bring a founder in of a you know company that's got double-digit billion dollars of a market cap, and say, "Listen, you know, what did you grapple with, and how did you make these decisions, and what would you do differently if you could wind back time?" And then, and then it's not me telling them, and so I really like that because I can sort of weave in visits from people that they'll listen to just by, you know, by na the nature of who they are. Um, and then you always have examples. And the other thing is the cases that you bring into classes, I think, especially on the platform course, I probably change a quarter to a third of it every year. And some of it, if it's a topic area, I just leave it blank in terms of what the case is. And then two weeks ahead of time, I just troll the, you know, mine the news. And then I build mini cases just based off what's current. So they're reading something that was in the newspaper a week or two ago. And so you can't argue that it's not current. It's like the stuff is popping up all over the place. Um, so you can, I, I, I think that helps us. I mean, you know, you can have a classic like National Cranberry. When I used to teach ops, I would always teach that because it's like the perfect process flow mapping capacity management um, type of case. But you shouldn't have all of that. You ought to be able to take things from what's happening every single day and bring those in to the class as well, because otherwise you're teaching the history of management, not the practice of it. Out of curiosity, Jeff, what do you feel most comfortable teaching? The economics, the platform aspect, the IS, the OM, the health? What do you swim? What's your water? What's my water? That's a great question. I, I, honestly, the, the, the stuff that I need to prep the least for, I'd say is the platform work because that's where I spend the bulk of my time, say, working with companies and working just in terms of the projects that I'm working on, because that's really why I'm brought into a lot of research projects is because of that background and expertise. So even if it's in healthcare, even if it's in operations, it usually will have a platform overlap. Um, so that's probably my 
easiest and sort of where I can I can just riff because of a, I always have a, a sort of a Rolodex in my head of current um, examples. Uh, operations management, I think, is because I did it for almost 20 years and have published considerably in that. I, I use a lot of those examples in platform work. And so I kind of tend to merge those together. There's a whole lot of thinking about processes, flows, measurements, um, incentives that are come directly out of operations. And I, that's important. Um, and then where I probably have to do the most work in prep is I also teach data analytics. And that's where I really have to work my tail off uh, because it, it's, it's got a lot of detail. I code in either Python or R. Uh, so I always have to rework things. Uh, we do a lot of pulling live data from APIs. They always break every year. So you have to um, either personally or have your TAs go and, and just test everything way ahead of time to make sure that things work and then rebuild exercises. So, you know, the, it, it just, it depends partly on how, how, how detailed it is. So because the platform tends to work, tends to operate more at the level of strategy and management, I find that that's easier just from a prep side. Whereas if I'm doing granular coding, it feels more like I'm teaching a, a combination of kind of probability theory, statistics, and computer science. And man, that you just have to work much harder at making sure you've got the detail right. Does that make sense? Yes. And and what about healthcare? Do you do you teach in healthcare? Oh. I really don't yet. I use a little bit of examples in some of the other classes. So for example, I, I mean, it's a funny story. I had a, uh, I was teaching data analytics. Um, we have something called the Dartmouth coach, which goes about eight, 10 times a day back and forth between Hanover and, and Boston. And I forget how I ended up meeting the data scientists at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center, but I, I met um, two women and I invited them to speak in my class. And so they came to the data science class. And then I was able to say, look, you know, let's, what I wanted the students to come away with is an understanding of the range of types of data and questions that you ask. So for example, they'll have something weird, like why are we getting hospital acquired infections in wing E of the building, you know? And so that's a, a kind of a straightforward operations management style question which is we have this fault and now we'll ask the five whys of what happened. But the way that you ask the five whys or more is that you've got a lot of data to collect and the data are going to be all over the map. Some of it is going to be interview data. Some of it will come out of the electronic health medical record system. Some of it will be test data. And so you'll have many different types of data. And then you have to use those to start to answer the question. Uh, and then I, I compared the size of the data team at Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, to the size of the data team at Airbnb. And uh, I have a, a friend and colleague who is the head economist there. And so he'll pop in sometimes to talk to one of my classes uh, and kind of explain how they approach data science and the types of questions that they ask. And then the trick question that you ask the students is, who has the bigger data science team? Dartmouth Hitchcock that is serving 
you know, five, six million patients in the upper valley of kind of New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine is, is its reach. And there's sort of a boundary at which Boston is, then becomes the center of, of gravity. Or Airbnb, which is serving hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, and in hundreds of cities all over planet Earth, and handles vastly more transactions. And of course, it's Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And the reason is that the complexity is an order of magnitude higher of the types of transactions, interactions, and therefore the data that they're capturing. Um, so you, I think that's an important type of thing that you can help the kids understand context. And that's where the healthcare uh, context has been really interesting and it can kind of help them think about that. And then if you want to get really granular and, and simple, you could say, well, or you might be trading commodities and then you're literally looking at, at ticks and market depths in a commodity like oil, front month of oil or front month of natural gas or something. And there the data are really well structured. You've got a ton of it. It's high frequency, um, but it's not really wide. I mean, you can add a, signals, but you don't usually see that same kind of complexity. So Jeff, you, you talked about early on uh, switching this conversation back to research. You, you talked quite a bit about how you have multiple areas you've, you've succeeded in working in. And at the same time, uh, you also said that every time you walk into a project, it takes its own time, its own course. So, so did you strategize the areas you worked in or did they grow organically? How did you approach your research uh, as streams, given that you have so many different streams you have succeeded in? Mostly it's what I'm interested in. I mean, definitely the work in operations came out of this sort of focus on new product development that people like Carl Ulrich and Steve Eppinger and Charlie Fine were doing at MIT and Dan Whitney. So that group of people were hugely impactful on how I viewed the world. That, then the work with Ed really naturally followed. So we did some theory work, for example, around multi-level learning curves and how those sort of learning at a, at a kind of component level interacts with learning at a subsystem and then at a system level. And so you need to kind of manage that when you think about outsourcing and where you're going to retain knowledge and where you're going to let it go um, to the supply base and how you might think about that. Uh, but that, so that was just stuff we thought was really a interesting and it was important because firms were grappling with how do you manage outsourced projects that are complicated it's not the same as buying screws if you're going to outsource either programming or or sort of subsystems that are integral to the rest of a product. Uh, there's a lot of communication and coordination that needs to happen. And I just thought those were interesting problems. They were hard. Uh, I'd seen some of it in the industrial context when I worked at GE. And then on the IT side, the information economics, same thing. I mean, honestly, it was because Twin Peaks got canceled. And I was very frustrated that a show that I thought was really interesting got canceled. And then we looked into the economics of it and sort of a ad sponsored system did not work for niche programming. Uh, it does now because it's a subscriber sponsored system, but at the time it didn't work. Uh, then we started looking at software markets 
and going, man, that's pretty interesting. Where's all this free stuff and are they ever gonna charge for it? So that was just interesting questions. It was honestly not very strategic. It was mostly just what was, what felt important enough to be worth the time and interesting enough that you could sustain your, your sort of focus on it. How do you manage your time? How do you find time to do everything you do? Well, my wife would tell me that I'm working harder now than at any point in my life ever, including probably the easiest part was being a doctoral student. And you kind of laugh about that, but I'd worked at GE, which was sort of like joining the army at the time. And so being a, a somewhat older PhD student meant that it was a job. So I'd go to work, go to the office, leave at five or 5.30, go work out, work out. That took a couple hours. We'd meet up at nine, have dinner, go to bed, wash, rinse, repeat. So that was the doctoral program. Very simple, very focused. You knew what you were supposed to do. Um, then honestly, being an assistant professor wasn't that much different. Uh, but after that, things get really complicated. You end up taking on a lot of different roles and responsibilities. And the way I like to explain it is the number of people who have a legitimate claim on your time only goes up. So the number of people that you have to pay attention to and you want to, but also you really have to. I mean, you're on a, a university level committee and it's dealing with something important. You can't blow the provost off. You know, your dean wants to help you set sort of a hiring strategy or you've got to deal with something, you know, that's hard. Um, you can't ignore that. Uh, you know, you're in the middle of hiring and you have to go to these seminars because that's the future of your school. Eventually you're going to sort of ride off into the sunset. You can't ignore that. Um, you're a department editor and you have a backlog of stuff. You can't ignore that. You just try to stay on top of as many things as you want. And honestly, the balls sometimes fall on your feet. You break your toes. And uh, you sort of think hard about that. And, and, and you're, I find myself riding the edge of what you can do. And my wife would say, you've got to learn how to say no and just choose more. And my problem is there's just so much interesting stuff that that's hard. <laughs> you know, in terms of palms, what difference has palms made to you, palms made to the society in general? So palms has had a hugely positive impact on my career. Um, now, least of which is that they published the first three papers I ever published. Uh, and those papers were unusual in the sense that they were not some of them were not sort of obvious operations management papers. So for example, one was called From Buyer to Integrator, the, uh, the Transformation of the Supply Chain Manager in the Vertically Disintegrating Firm. And that was literally building on this idea of firms are outsourcing a ton of things, but they still have to have coherent products and services. How do they do that? Uh, that actually came because I went and interviewed all the graduates of the Leaders for Manufacturing program over the prior first 10 years of its history and all their managers. And I discovered that most of them were supply chain facing because they were solving this hard coordination problem. But that's not an obvious paper that you would open up sort of POMS or management science or operations research and find anything that looked like that. So I give a huge amount of credit to Cal and Anant Rahman up, uh, up at Harvard. Uh, for kind of pushing the envelope on what 
was going to be valid research and interesting things that they'd be willing to publish. And uh, so, so Palms, I think, was much more open-minded in the breadth of research that they were willing to publish um, than some perhaps more technical journals. Um, and I think as a result, they've frankly been able to have more impact and uh, published a lot more interesting things. So, and, but that's obviously a personal bias because I'm, I'm interested in lots of different things. So, I, you know, I think there's about, and, and, and it should be said, there's, there are different types of careers. I mean, we have some amazing technical colleagues who have explored sort of in great detail some of the beautiful mathematics that describe our field. And there's got to be room in the field for both. POMS for me has been an outlet that has been willing to publish simulation work, has been willing to publish survey articles, has been willing to publish uh, interview-based um, kind of framework articles, uh, as well as data, you know, sort of empirical pieces. That's been wonderful. It's clear that, of course, you know, having a multidisciplinary mindset and entrepreneurial mindset, it's how you view the future. How, how else do you view the future of academics? And in particular within your research streams? So I think that the future of academics, I'm going to answer that. I, I want to do those in reverse order because um, I think sort of in the near term, what we're dealing with say in operations is I used to have, I felt like a two headed monster where my kind of information economics work was running up against one uh, vertical silo and my work in operations was running up another vertical silo. But I'd say in the last four or five years, those two worlds have, have collided in a good way. There's been, a, I mean, it's just clear that the structure of the economy has changed. You know, it, it's obvious that the big tech companies that can have both huge scale at the cloud level, but also harness network effects on the demand side are now growing much faster than any other segment of the economy. So that's important. And it's obvious to everybody. And so if you have some good theory and you have some understanding of that world and you can start to apply it in our more industrial kind of tangible context, I think that's, that's where we're going to head. Uh, so for example, a lot of the big tech firms grew up in more of a B2C world. I think that we're going to see now the wave of B2B and that's good for us as, as operations management people because now the physical constraints of systems are going to come into bear and that will matter in ways that they really didn't in a B2C world. And so a good understanding of how supply chain sort of physics in a Wally Hop and, and others world um, will matter. Uh, and I think that we have increasingly a lot to offer to that conversation um, where perhaps sort of the pure economic theory uh, kind of ran ahead of, of where we were a decade and a half ago. Um, so that's near term and I think that's really interesting. And, and, and in parallel, you've got sort of the whole rise of, of data and the ability to do artificial intelligence, machine learning and apply. Um, and so that's gonna have a, an enormous impact, I think on our field where you just can't ignore that. 
it's not it, because the information is there. You can do interesting things with it. Uh, you can apply it. So it's it's funny because I got asked to teach data analytics about ten years ago. I didn't want to do it, but finally, as as area head, couldn't really figure out anyone else to assign to it. So I just took it myself, and that was a great decision because that's taught me a lot about how to apply data in different contexts. Longer term, I think the forces on us are going to be pretty severe, frankly, in the sense that we've got to be mindful in higher ed of where resources come from and what society is going to be willing to pay for. And I think we've had the luxury, you know, my, I'm gray, so I've, and uh, me and, and people who are older, uh, frankly, I've had the luxury of growing up in a time when society was willing to fund research, willing to fund higher ed. I think now a lot of really hard questions are getting asked by parents, um, by say state legislators. Uh, you can look at the, the state level funding for, for universities has dropped like a rock. I find that frustrating, but I think that that means on the political side that we've perhaps not done a great job of explaining the value proposition. And then the withdrawal of support from society is reflective of that. You know, we're in STEM, so we're a little bit more insulated from that. That conversation is a really hard one with some of our other colleagues at universities, but I think that's a macro trend that isn't going to go away. And it's gonna have us asking some pretty hard questions about how we operate our business, you know, what, how we articulate the value of what we do um, and defend that and, and, and celebrate it, frankly. I think there's a huge amount to offer and we've done kind of a crummy job as a, not just operations, but really as higher ed of um, really making that clear. So what advice would you have for young scholars who are entering academia? You've, you've mentioned that before, but we certainly would like to know your perspective. You know, in terms of strategies, I think you, you've got to have a kind of a portfolio. And that portfolio, if you think about what you're trying to do is you're trying to prove that you can master the craft of producing journal articles, of course, um, but also of teaching, and that you can kind of manage your time to do the work that the job requires. Because in many ways, the, it's, there's a lot of freedom, and that freedom requires you to be focused. Otherwise, you can just sit and troll the internet all day long. And there are days I've lost to that. And I'm sure everybody else has as well. Um, and the challenge is not to lose too many of them. And so I would say you think about it as an apprentice period. You know, you're a cabinet maker. You must make these papers and prove that you can do it. And so those are your singles and doubles. And they're really about mastering the craft of producing publishable work. Uh, but that's really not good enough because that's not going to keep you in the field. Uh, that may get you tenure, but I've seen a lot of people that kind of fall over the finish line, um, exhausted and sort of done. I never felt that way. I, 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 that was like step one. And then I just felt like that was just the very beginning. And the reason is 
in addition to kind of your cabinetry work, you should also have things that you're deeply passionate about. They may not get you tenure. And so you don't want to put too much of your time on them, but you can't put zero because you've got to have the next set of things that you care enough about that much like you've handed your dissertation in and you can't stand it anymore. You've, you've kind of gotten your first group of workout. You better have something that you love and care about that keeps you going. Um, so that would be part one is just think about the job as you're proving that you can do it and having projects that are contained enough so they're not so open-ended that you get bogged down and you can get those out the door. Um, and then the other part is I've succeeded, frankly, through teamwork. I mean, if you were to look at the things, the streams of work, um, I've worked with a lot of different co-authors, but the ones that I keep coming back to are the ones I used to do problem sets with in grad school. Uh, we, you know, like Ed and I would, would do our problem sets every weekend. The pizza guy knew where to come. We had one, one conference room that we took over Saturday and Sunday. And, uh, you know, we, we really enjoy each other's company and we respect each other and we'll know that, you know, you'll, you'll get the work done. And it's a lot of fun. And early in our careers, we traveled back and forth all the time, stayed at each other's houses, had a lot of great dinners. Uh, and so the other thing I would say is, if you find people you like to work with, that you're compatible with, of course, who are capable of doing the work, um, and you can make it fun. So that because a lot of this, I think is social. I mean, I don't want to work 12 hours a day, I don't want to work six or eight hours a day. And then I want to stop, go do something fun, have a nice dinner and a bottle of wine. And I want to work with people who share that and, and whatever it might be, because a career is really long. And it's nice early on when you identify those people with whom you enjoy building things and doing things, that's your kind of your core team. And then you build out from there. So that would, yeah, I tell this to my master's students all the time. I say, look left, look right. The people that you've met here are people you should hang on to because you've enjoyed their company here and they're going to be people that you can do stuff with later uh we don't want to keep you too long so again congratulations you know let me just say as a parting word it's an oh, incredible yes. honor you know to be nominated as a palm society fellow because you know the if you look at the membership it's it's really impressive people who have done a lot in our field and if you think about the arc of a career that's the sort of thing getting that recognition is, is something you'll be very proud of. So um, I'm deeply honored and really appreciate everything that, uh, frankly, POMS has done for my career. I mean, honestly, they've been there at really critical moments when I could have easily fallen off the rails and had to go do something else. So I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. Thank you very much for joining. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. We spoke to Professor Jeffrey Parker from Dartmouth College, Palms Fellow 2020. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them to palms.society at gmail.com and stay tuned for future podcasts.